This is Peter McCoy, and you're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome one and all to this episode of The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. In this episode, we are talking to Peter McCoy, who is most well known as one of the founders of Radical Mycology, which is a grassroots organization and movement that teaches the many ways to work with fungi for personal, societal, and ecological resilience. And as he describes himself, he is a interdisciplinary, systems-oriented mycology educator. So we talk about the traditional uses of fungi, uh, mycoremediation, being mycoliterate, what does that mean? Uh, we talk about a, a sense of connection, uh, the what fungi can actually teach us, and Peter shares a bit of his journey. So uh, if you have heard of Radical Mycology, you might know there's a book by the same name. In 2016, Peter released the book called Radical Mycology, a treatise on seeing and working with fungi. Um, he's got mad skills. He's, got, he's connected all over the place. He's a lead cultivation expert for the Amazon micro-renewal project. He is the mycology advisor to open source ecology and Permaculture Magazine North America. And apart from his work with fungi, he's also a community organiser, an artist, a musician, a lecturer, and a teacher. And so, um, yeah, check him out. Uh, listen to this episode. Let me know what you think. Um, he's available for consultation on uh, mushroom co- cultivation, remediation design, site surveys, lectures, Um, informal talks and teaching assignments. So all of those links will be in the show notes. And um, just want to ask you about how did you go with last episode with Nicole Masters? Um, Was that a bit distracting for you, the way that I had to re-record my questions for the the second half? The reason I asked that is because (laughs) it happened in this one too. And when I realized it, when I uploaded it, I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe it. So um, I've got new cables because the cables were the issue. Um, But this is sort of what happens when you're bootstrapping it. You just uh, figure it out as you go along. So I hope that you enjoy the value in this episode. And wanted to shout out to Confiture Band. Uh, thanks, Phil, for sharing your music and uh, getting it out there. Really love it. Uh, I played a sample of that in this episode, uh, which delineates the live episode to the re-recorded questions that I did. So check them out, confitureband.com. And without further ado, let's get into this fascinating fungal episode with Peter McCoy. Today our guest is a author, a activist and a mycological expert. He wrote the book called Radical Mycology and has a organization of the same name. Welcome to the show, Peter McCoy. Thanks for having me, Ben. Happy to be here. And so you're uh, located in Oregon, is that right? Uh, yeah, Oregon, heart of uh, beautiful Cascadia, where I was born and raised. It seems like there's um, lots of uh, mycology action going on up in that, that part of the world. Yeah, well, we live in arguably one of the more mycologically rich parts of the world. Um, you know, the Cascadia bioregion extends from Northern California to up into Alaska, and it's the largest 
uh, temperate rainforest in the world. There's only a handful of temperate rainforest regions, and ours is the largest. And and we also have a quite a significant portion of it um, relative to the rest of the world is old growth temperate rainforest, which provides its own unique fungal diversity um, density, which you really don't find many of the, you know hardly anywhere else in the world. Um, so that, along with the weather, and I think just the general cultural trends and values here, leads to a bit more mycoliteracy, mycophilia, as we say, love for fungi, love for fungi. Um, so it's a great place to live if you're into mushrooms, absolutely. For sure. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Vancouver, and I just did not... Uh was not aware of the the amount of uh, fungi that was around me. You know, I think my eyes weren't open to that. But um, I've I've heard about you for you know over the years. You know, it's been maybe five or six years that I've sort of heard oh radical mycology. People talking about this, um, and I know you've talked a lot about radical mycology. Uh, you've had lots of interviews. Uh, so why don't you just give us a bit of a, a history of not necessarily radical mycology of how you started your activism because you you were you've been an activist for quite a long time haven't you? Yeah, it's true. Um, it's something I don't. Uh, I appreciate the question because I don't get asked that one too much. Um, but yeah, sort of what led me, I guess, maybe into advocating for fungi, but really through mycology, I see it. Uh, you know, helping create a better world that we're all we're all striving for. Um, and how I just came to conclude that mycology is a uh, major piece of the puzzle that, that most people didn't, weren't aware of. Um, and that really just came out of a number of sort of convening trends in my life, sort of paths converged years ago and things worked out quite well, if you will. Um, but the, the, the history, I guess, what you're, what you're asking is um, I, I grew up in... I don't know, pretty average, uh, basically in the suburbs of Portland, sort of, um, you know, middle-class family, not really familiar at all with fungi, uh, didn't learn anything about them in, in school. So kind of average in a lot of respects in that way. Um, but I was always a bit of a troublemaker, I guess. And as I got a little bit older, um, I just started learning more and I'd always been a autodidact. I just love to read and learn. And it's just part of my, my lifestyle. Um, when I was in my later teens, basically I started to discover good documentaries and independent uh, media in various forms and independent literature and publications. And that, you know, really rapidly expanded my worldview. Then I got in my sort of average education um, in the burbs and started realizing, well, there's a lot of things going on in the world and there's a lot of ways to engage and try to make this, this home we all share a better place. And it quickly became sort of a, a forethought of mine of how I can contribute to that. And I moved from Portland to New York when I was 20 and there um, met a lot of really great people, got involved in a number of, of basically activist projects and pretty quickly learned a number of things about how to engage in the world and really how to actively um, contribute to it. And, and uh, came up with the, uh, learned about this term prefigurative politics. Basically it's a fancy way of saying creating the world that you want, basically assuming that we can create uh, a better tomorrow. And, and that really was inspiring for me on so many fronts and so many great projects I saw in New York. It's such a dense city. Um, and, and a few that I was involved with really inspired me and show that you can make a difference, um, even just one person or a couple people, which I never realized. And um, eventually moved back to the West Coast, went to college in, in Olympia. And there I met um, a number of great people doing other great things, but also um, a lot of community engagement, a lot of kind of community activism, not so much uh, being antagonistic to the problems of the world, but really trying to create the solutions or just create a stronger sense of community in the town I was living in. There was a really strong um, art and just local cultural vibe that was also inspiring in its own way, as opposed to being what we were against. We were uh, revolving around what we were against. We revolved around what we were for. And that really made me uh, also feel quite happy and you know just more um, optimistic about other trends you might see in the world or sort of point to. And, and that was about 20, 21 then. And I was interested, I'd been in my interest in mycology since I was a teenager, but, um, was getting into other things then was doing other types of, of activism from, from healthcare to, uh, just literature distribution. I've always been interested in independent media, um, and various other projects, environmental issue campaigns I was involved in, but mycology was always there. 
Um, but I kind of realized early on that this was, again, as I also realized in New York, that this was a topic that I was interested in, but I never heard anybody discuss. And it was in this, it was, it was something I wasn't highly cognizant of, but realized was sort of this missing piece. And I would think about how mycology could fit into these issues I was interested in, but nobody else was saying that. And when I would try to bring that up, people didn't understand what I was talking about. I kind of get a blank stare. And eventually I just, you know, as the years progressed and I met friends and a couple people who also actually understood what I was thinking and, and also knew things about fungi, um, a, a dialogue started to evolve out of ideas that I felt, you know, I had been having for many years that, that mycology is, is this is piece of this greater puzzle that we're all trying to solve um, on social and environmental fronts and many other fronts, um, healthcare fronts even. Um, but again, just people weren't weren't aware of it. And, and what I've come to realize in more recent years, and this took kind of a long time, um, even though it's so simple, is just understanding that the problem is more that we don't get any education of fungi generally um, in the States. And I'm pretty sure it's quite similar where you live. Mm -hmm. um, just fungi are not a part of the, the common curriculum. And so it's not anybody's fault that we don't have this awareness. It's just that as a state of affairs. And so many years ago, I realized that this was the thing that I could bring, the sort of piece of the puzzle I could contribute that I didn't really see anybody else contributing, um, having these sort of connections, intersections that I felt quite strongly about. And in a long way, I've made some good friends that share this and have sort of evolved this dialogue um, or sort of this argument um, and just sort of this, I, what I feel quite strongly is a holistic perspective of mycology um, as opposed to, or just sort of as an evolution out of perhaps the traditional uh, foundations of it as just a rote science, a biological science where you just study the organisms and that's kind of where it ends. Um, what we've tried to propose throughout mycology is yes, there's that and they're interesting and important organisms, but there's these ways that they fold into human culture historically and also contemporarily with great insight and benefits and, and actually quite some, some quite profound um, possibilities for, for improving our state of affairs and, and really making the future and, and today a better better place mm -hmm. yeah it's it's very interesting uh, peter it sounds uh, on a similar uh, like a parallel sort of track of the idea of fermentation you know we had uh, sandor cats on the podcast a while ago uh, at the beginning and you know is he's called people call him a, a fermentation revivalist um maybe there is more literacy about fermentation but the idea that um it's it's about living life with fermentation, living life with fungi rather than this is this thing over here that's separate from us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love Sandra's work and it's a similar argument that, that fermentation is so central to human history and, and, you know, pretty much every traditional culture had fermentation in its various forms as a part of their cuisine and, and through that cuisine custom and, and perhaps even ritual in many, in many respects, you know, especially with fermented drink. Um, and this is central to the human story, but we, we, we lost that, you know, especially in Western culture the last couple of centuries and Sanders have done such a great job of revitalizing that, bringing that back into our day-to-day -day culture and awareness and, and appreciation and in our palates. And, and I'm inspired by his work. Absolutely. Um, as with other people, but I love Sandor for many reasons. And that's, you know, I kind of take inspiration from that to a degree, but obviously it goes in a different route with fungi. Uh, because there's there's even more hurdles to overcome because not only are fungi removed from our culture, but curiously and sort of for our, uh, no good reason, we have this additional fear of fungi that's been woven into Western culture. We call it like a mycophobia. You know, children are taught to not even touch them, you know, and we, we learn nothing. And so we fear the unknown, this type of thing. Whereas I feel like fermentation is unfamiliar for many people, but it's not, it's not you know, scary. Um, perhaps we're not really, we don't even, you know, we don't not told not to touch it or not to drink it. We're not familiar with it. Um, yeah, there's all these hurdles around the, the the unfortunate stigma and just sort of the um, and to pretty good degree irrational fear of fungi that's um, been just woven in over the centuries. So a lot of our work throughout mycology is dispelling that, normalizing fungi, destigmatizing them, making them as cool and awesome and and radical. And, and fun as they really are and showing people all the different ways that, that you can bring them into your life, whether for practical purposes, whether you're just interested in history um, or you want to, you know, really, really change the, the world. Um, there's many ways that they can add to, to add to this puzzle that we're all, like I say, trying to solve. Mm -hmm. 
So you said um, the Pacific Northwest is more mycoliterate, and uh, I think you know, growing up in Vancouver, I think I remember the Hyder, uh, the Hyder people using uh, like lichens and that sort of stuff. But can you explain a bit more about uh, what that area and maybe any other areas in the world that are microliterate? What what do they actually know, or how do they use uh, fungi? Well, it, it definitely varies um, all around the world. Um, you know, our, our best documentation historically um, has come from Asia, and especially with you know a lot of the Chinese scholars from a couple millennia ago, while documenting the, the uses of mushrooms as food, as medicine, as sort of potent, you know, eternal medicines or you know immortality medicines type of things. Um, and so that's where we've often looked for sort of some of the most ancient records. But taking a step back, what, what we have to realize is really that a lot of, of course, history has been lost through for, for many reasons. Um, hasn't information has been transmitted? But also, I think a, a deeper question that might not be considered often is that when anthropologists do come in to dig up a site, or even a hundred, couple hundred years ago, when you know scholars of the time were writing down accounts and, and traditional stories, was it at their forefront to ask those people? Or even today, when they dig up a site, to think about how fungi were involved in that culture, I would think that it's it's really not even a question. It's not really a common consideration because, again, uh, I mean, I'm not a trained anthropologist, but I would bet good money that you know mycology, uh, ancient mycology, is not really a common topic in in a standard you know master's or PhD program for an anthropologist. So again, just sort of there's that. Un, unrecognized bias or, or filter or lack of awareness, however you want to phrase it, that goes into studying cultures today or, or historically that has contributed to our lack of understanding of perhaps how rich and, and woven in fungi were to a given culture. Now, that's not to say that they, mushrooms or other fungi lichens were more important than plants. Um, you know, I don't mean to say that, but very possibly, and in some conditions, they seem to have been you know, especially certain mushrooms in a, in a given region were just as revered or in certain cases were the most revered. You know, the, the best example in that case is in ancient China, where even today in Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, where, you know, I don't know, they have thousands of ingredients used in their pharmacopoeia, reishi mushroom is the, the, the king of all herbs. It's at the top of the list, more potent than ginseng. It is the, the most potent medicine. Um, and even above the mushroom itself is its spores, which are, you know, the seed of its life. Um, and that is the most revered medicine, as I'm told, in Chinese medicine. So that kind of says a lot. When they, if you understand Chinese medicine, how complex mm -hmm. it is to put a mushroom at the top, that's that says a lot. And then, of course, there's many other mushrooms that are quite revered in Chinese medicine. Um, you know, but then curiously, in, in Ayurvedic medicine, which is also quite quite ancient, quite complex, mushrooms are very much in the minority. They're they're kind of dismissed, and um, as I understand it, not very well appreciated. I think a couple mushrooms are incorporated, say cordyceps. But cordyceps is that they actually consider it a plant, which is you know it's not it's a fungus, but they they call it a plant. Um, so so where so where I live in the Northwest, uh, traditional uses of mushrooms in in the various Native American groups and First Nations really varied from from group to group. Some are better documented than others. Um, a great example is the Haidaguay people you mentioned, where. One of the things I know about them is they would take large Ganoderma mushrooms, these large woody medicinal mushrooms, and actually create masks out of these these mushrooms and wear them during ceremonies and, and dances. Um, similar practice was done around the world in China, as an interesting parallel. Um, you know, but but it, it really varies around the world in in uh, deserted regions in say Africa, North and South Africa, and then throughout the Middle East. Uh, what are called desert truffles, these underground edible protein rich and actually kind of medicinal uh, mushrooms were used both as food traditionally and still are and, and can be quite revered in that respect. But, you know, say the San people, um, also known as the, the Bush people, the Bushmen in South, South Africa, they would carry these mushrooms as, as and they thought it would give them sort of invisibility when they were hunting is kind of an interesting um, perspective. Oh, wow. Um, there's another woody, uh, sort of a woody conch in the Midwest of the U S that is quite, uh, produces a really nice scent when you, when you, uh, burn it or, or sort of, uh, smolder it. And this mushroom would be carved into basically little medallions with, and it'd be, um, sort of burned in with symbols into it. And the native people in the Midwest, uh, the Anishabi, uh, would make 
necklaces and different basically jewelry out of this mushroom that was also smelled really, really nice. Um, in over in Siberia, another woody mushroom that's actually quite prolific across uh, Eurasia called Amadou, Fomis fomentarius. Uh, it's been used in many applications and in, and in many accounts throughout throughout history. One interesting one that I like is in Siberia. It would be burned with a, a silver fir tree, and that would create a sort of incense that was used to smudge and cleanse the house of a recently deceased person. So mm. there's a lot of ways mushrooms have been appreciated, you know, beyond just food and medicine, which there are accounts of that. But I've always been interested in, um, you know, the the other curious approaches, um, the smoke and smudge, uh, concept is, is quite common around the world, just like with sage and sweet grass is used in different places. Um, but then you have these more sort of eclectic and nuanced approaches like the, the one I gave for South Africa. Mm. It's really interesting, Peter. Um, you can tell that you're, you're passionate about this and, and passionate about finding all these little, um, sort of like, uh, nuggets of um, information that seems quite um, uh, like disparate around the world, but you're bringing them together. Where would you say that you um, you got this passion from? Was it from the activism, or was it actually before? Did, was it like your parents? Did your parents instill something in you, or did you have any experiences that were, you were like, "I'm going to be passionate about this"? Um. I mean, it, it kind of goes with what I was saying earlier, where it's more as, you know, the, the question has just been there, you know, um, I'm a kind of a pragmatist, I'm an optimist and a pragmatist and a realist. Um, and as I've thought long and hard about what I do with my time, how do I make the best use of my time? Um, there's many, so many things you can contribute to on so many fronts. Um, and, and a lot of things I like to do is per, for personal pleasure. Um, but as far as the thing, I, you know, I want to feel like I'm giving back. I feel like a lot of us want to do that. And though I, I think I could do that in various forms, the mycology one has stood out because, you know, as I said earlier, it's, it's, I feel like it hasn't been done, hasn't been given justice. Um, whereas so many other things have been addressed quite thoroughly. This is a, a big hole in the conversation. And the more I look into it in all these fronts, um, you know, the, the, anthropological perspective, I think is a, is a great one. The, or we call it ethnomycological, the human fungal relationship perspective. I find that just fascinating sort of curious, you know, culturally, sociologically, historically, I'm interested in just those, those kind of general topics broadly. But then when you talk about mushrooms in that context, it's even more interesting to me. And then to discover that it's this, again, an overlooked area of history, an overlooked aspect of the human story. Um, and then, you know, that's just interesting to note. But then when you look into the details, it's actually quite, I think, quite beautiful and quite inspiring and, and in some cases moving. Um, and for me, all of this adds up to, in so much of my ecology, what it really just adds up to, and this is sort of an underlying theme, I think, that really propels my work is that though I love mycology, though I love these topics, though I love all the, the practical aspects of, of, of the, the, the art and the science, there's all of that, um, but I feel like that's kind of on the surface. For me, what's what's even deeper is that through that work, you you realize that there's different ways of seeing the world. There's different ways of understanding, you know, even just the, the, your backyard or, or or history or your ancestry. In so many ways, you just say, hmm, maybe I've maybe I've been missing something, or oh wow, there's a whole new way to look at the ecological world around me. Perhaps it's not guided by plants and animals, as I have assumed, but it's actually these hidden organisms that actually control the world, which we haven't even talked about the ecology, but you could say that about fungi. So it's whole new paradigms really open up through studying mycology. It's kind of endlessly mind-blowing. I think that's what a lot of people find once they really start to dig into the topic. I'm not certainly not the first person to sort of say that or to think that. But what that then leads me to say is, and then through that and sort of saying, huh, it's hopefully this opens your eyes to new perspectives. And then perhaps through that, we can also think about how the other aspects of our lives could be thought about differently. You know, we're, we're always trying, everybody's trying new things, trying to, you know, just improve their personal life, improve their neighborhood, their community, the, the world at large. We're always trying new things. And, and perhaps I think sometimes we get stuck in a rut or we don't see that there's other opportunities that haven't been, been tried yet. And mycology constantly reminds me that there, that the unknown is is still out there. That there is still mystery in the world. There are still things we do not know. Perhaps there's things we'll never understand. Fungi are full of uh, strange mysteries and, and irresol irresolvable um, aspects. And for me, that's that's what keeps it it going. I mean, I've had a lot of interest in, in other hobbies and things. This isn't really a hobby any, anymore, but other interests over the years that have 
haven't held my attention, you know, for nearly as long. Mm. Um, I mean, I'll learn them. I'll sort of grasp them. You feel like it's under my belt, what have you, and, and then move on. You know, I could perhaps master it further, practice it further, what have you. But with mycology, it's just, it's so vast. There's so much we don't know. There's so much anybody can contribute to. And then for me personally, I just, I like to teach. And so I feel that, um, you know, that's, it's also something I'm, uh, can contribute is just being able to, to educate others because just the science is, is not accessible at the, the same time. You know, this is also one of the, the major drawbacks. Um, as I said earlier, it's not in our schools and we have to kind of recognize that and come to terms with just the fact that we're, most people don't know much. Um, uh, but then the, then the answer to the question is, well, what do we, how do we learn it? How do we study it? Um, and that's something that I've worked hard to, to address both through writing my book and now through, um, starting an, an online school, um, as I see it just, you know, again, steps forward in, in this evolving conversation. Yeah, um, I'm really excited. I was just, um, uh, before the interview, having a look at the MycoLogos um, website. Can you take us uh, briefly through how you went from a, a mycology as a hobby to through to radical mycology and now through to the MycoLogos school? No, sure. So, yeah, I started... Um, well, I picked up mycology as an interest as a, as a teenager about, was about 15 or 16, can't remember exactly when. And as with many people, as soon as I started learning about it, I, I discovered how interesting the topic was. Um, and I held on to it as a, as a curiosity in, in my teen years and would read books. And I tried cultivating a number of times, you know, with not, not really any good success because I didn't know what I was doing. But it, it got the bug under me because then it was something I had to figure out. Um, I'm, I'm the puzzle-solving type of person. And, um, and then as years progressed, as I said earlier, kind of got into these other arenas and understanding, um, the bigger picture and out of all that, this notion of taking mycology into a, a more intimate and central aspect of our social and environmental dialogues, um, was basically what radical mycology stood for and, and has worked to evolve over all these years. You know, it's gone on a, a decade, um, and a lot of that work, I'd say, is, is pretty much all along the way. We've through radical mycology, the the emphasis was on advocacy, um, you know, awareness building, and really a big part of our work was just community building. And and you know, through our events called the Radical Mycology Convergence, which happened every other year, they're internationally attended, multi day uh, events, um, workshop based, but also we're camping together and, and hanging out. And really, through it's very intentional to say. Yes, we're learning these skills, but perhaps more importantly, we are building a, you know, a global network, a community, if you if you will, um, of people that are interested in in this this contextualization of mycology. And whereas when you go to a lot of traditional mycological groups, organizations, and of course in academia, it's very the science is very much removed from the greater culture, greater context. It's sort of that's how science always is. It's sort of isolated from the actual real world. And we're trying to you know, merge that together. And a lot of people um, that come to the events are, again, trying to just figure out how to contribute to, to what's going on um, in the world around us. So that's really what radical ecology has been. Education um, is, was a part of that, mostly through but trying to just get the familiarity and the destigmatization, uh, destigmatizing, I guess, uh, through all that work and awareness building. Um, but mostly just trying to create a culture, if you will, this sort of and, and, you know, it wasn't the plan, but it's sort of become this thing where radical mycology as a phrase was originally sort of an idea, um, a sort of a new approach. And now it's sort of become a thing that you do. Like people, you know, this wasn't the plan, but people describe themselves as a radical mycologist. Um, and it's, it's sort of people understand it as a whole ethos, a whole sort of culture, um, which I guess was the goal, but it wasn't really the, the plan, if you will, to have it. That's very cool. Like, mm-hmm. So now out of that, though, on my end, um, I mean, all along the way, you know, I'm not, say, super active on the Internet. I don't make a lot of noise or I don't post lots of things, but I'm, I basically live and breathe mycology. I mean, I'm constantly studying and doing stuff, you know, behind the scenes, if you will. Um, always have lots of things going on. And, and you know, a big part of that was writing my book, uh, which was a multi-year process to basically take my knowledge over my 15, 16 years studying the topic, also the, the, the knowledge, the insights, the conversations I've had with many people over those years, uh, many ideas that weren't just necessarily my own, and synthesizing that into this one book where you know people could dive in because that wasn't that didn't exist. That was the book I always wanted, basically. It was the one I wrote growing up. Um, 
And now just evolving out of that, realizing that, that though that's uh, hopefully very helpful for people and gives them skills and insights, um, you still, there's really still much you can do. So, you know, people aren't, not everybody's, uh, learns the best through books and, and there's actually so much more that I can teach than I put into that, to that book. So that's for me, education has always been one of my strong suits and, uh, and the idea of having a school of, of having a more institutionalized, or I don't like to use that term, more formalized, I guess, structured approach to the education rather than just uh, these weekend events and workshops here and there, something much more intentional, much more structured, um, has always been in the back of my mind for actually many years, even before writing the book. Um, but I've finally come to the place where I feel very confident that I can not only do that logistically, but also that the knowledge is there. Um, and, and that that thrust is, you know, actually quite different than, than radical oncology. Radical oncology has always been about, uh, as I said, sort of advocacy, community building, awareness building, getting these sort of me media and culture creation tools to normalize and, and make mycology uh, approachable and contextualized. And yeah, whereas this school is, it's, it's that, and that's certainly going to be a part of the classes and things to a degree, but there's, it's obviously a bit more, as I say, formalized, structured, um, and, and really giving the knowledge, the, the, uh, uh, yeah, more formalized sort of respect and, and container, um, than say radical oncology is intended for. So there, there's sort of sister organizations. Obviously I'm involved in both. There's people involved in both, um, other people involved as well, sort of behind the scenes, but they, they sort of serve different functions and, um, you know, both will exist, uh, sort of side by side as time goes on. So, Peter, it sounds like radical mycology is the the artistic expression. It's the um, activist solution to mycology, and mycologos is the technical how to of mycology, which would then go and empower people to do radical mycology. Is that is that what what it is? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it, and that's um, that's essentially what you know. It's uh, for folks that might have been listening to podcasts with me or interviews with me over the last year plus, I keep saying that we're going to be rebuilding the website and it's actually getting closer and closer. Um, and that's basically what, what we're leaning towards more is that it's going to be, we're going to be sort of re representing radical mycology, um, sort of 2.0 is highlighting about basically an evolution where it's all the things we've been doing so far of advocating, creating these uh, dialogues and this, um, you know, all these ways for people to explain to explain to their friends and family and teachers why mycology is important um, in any aspect of life. But then on top of that, we're, we're just trying to create more uh, engaging media, more things to really just build the, the culture, the community. A lot of that will be through artworks um, and also a much, much better uh, website. The, the Rock Mycology site is a bit outdated, um, and so we're fully rebuilding it. It's going to be not only more info-dense, but also just much more... Um, sort of an enjoyable experience with a lot more media resources to share and sort of inspire as, and especially as time goes on. Um, and yeah, so that's a great way to phrase it. Then through this school, you know, just it's, it's a whole approach. It's for, for me, the, the Michael logos, it's, um, it's going to be more of a, uh, you know, really a much more personal thing. The radical mycology has always been a community effort, multiple minds coming together to sort of create a larger narrative. Michael logos is, a bit more of my personal perspective, uh, going a little bit deeper in some respects, a little bit more intentional. One of the courses, for example, is, um, you know, there's the applications and the classes like that, but one is on, you know, really understanding it's called mycology of place. So really taking a, a big step backwards, but also a big step inwards to, to really think about, um, what does my, what does fungi mean for you? And, and I do that because for myself and also for many other people, um, you, you know, I don't know about yourself and maybe probably many of the listeners can't necessarily relate to this, but 
there is this thing when you, you get interested in mycology, but there's sort of something that's like, you know, unspeakable, um, undescribable connection, a sort of resonance, uh, something sort of clicks, right? So there's this missing piece and people really connect with it. People feel like this is what I want to do. I, I, I get emails all the time, people saying, this is my life passion. I've discovered it. Um, how do I do this? How do I move forward with this? And often I don't have many answers because again, there's nowhere to study, which is again, why I'm starting the school. But then just that, that deep question, you know, I want to sort of honor it, recognize it and say, Hey, I, I can relate to that. Um, I'm not going to make this all about me, but I want to sort of give you the comfort zone and through a structured class, basically to explore that through journaling and, and this type of stuff. So that's the sort of the most, um, non-practical, I guess, class you might say, but also I think one of the most personal one I'm excited about, you know, I don't usually go there say, because I'm more focused on the practical things publicly, but I find it very important to build the culture, to build, you know, on into the future. We need to re-embrace fungi as a part of our, our legacy, um, both looking at it historically and also looking towards the future. Um, and we can only do that by really breaking down our fears and our sort of even just timidity around discussing it. Um, so yeah, so again, they're, they're similar organizations, uh, but quite different, which is why, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a whole new thing. It's something I've been sort of planning and thinking about, as I said, for many years and the time was right to finally, finally make it happen. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, you know, when you're talking about that, that reminds me of, um, what did you call that the the class that you that you teach the class? Mycology of place of place. Yeah. Right, mycology of place. When you talked about that, um, it it reminds me of the connections that you can have. Like as a landscaper, I know that um, plants need certain things, but there's like a deeper level of understanding, a deeper level of knowing there. Um, that's hard to describe. And uh, for example, what I mean is like growing up in Vancouver, like I smoked a fair bit of cannabis and people say that cannabis can be a gateway drug to uh, ecological consciousness. And um, that means like, you know, you get connected when you're growing the plant, you get connected to what the plant is doing. You get connected to the soil and what's happening um, with the soil, you know, the idea that everything is connected in, you know, that, that resonance that you talked about. So, um, so I've never tripped on, I've never tripped on psilocybin mushrooms, but it sounds like that's the same sort of thing there where, where there's like that connection to everything. Would you say that's like sort of like a parallel where, whether it's magic mushrooms or just mushrooms in general, they're teaching you, um, certain things about the world around you? Well, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the, so sort of two questions there, you know, the, 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 the sense of connection, I mean, that's going to vary by, by any person. I mean, the, the pragmatist is just going to see the practical value and, and what have you. Um, the more, more romantic type is just going to be moved by all the sort of magic and mystery of fungi, which you know, there's a lot to say there. Um, but again, I, I meet people that are just, you know, one or the other or both, or, or maybe even something else they're not really cognizant of. It just, they feel really connected to this topic. You know, there's, you know, why does anybody get interested in anything? It's just something about their upbringing or, or what have you. Um, but yeah, it, it, but it becomes a challenge because mycology is so stigmatized or so, uh, you know, removed from, you know, mainstream society. It can be really hard to discuss it and you kind of feel awkward. That was a big part of the rise of mycology was, I had that experience growing up. I couldn't talk to my, my good friends about it because they didn't know anything. And, you know, this is it's a little bit isolating. You know, you, you just learn to not talk about it. But, hey, I want to talk about this thing. I want to make, you know, other friends and make another group of friends, right, that we share this other interest. So and that's what that class is sort of meant about, just sort of nurturing and, and supporting that that connection, whatever that looks like for a person. Um, for myself, I mean, I can certainly say that mycology has been a, a gateway science into the other sciences. You know, I, I actually grew up as much more of an artist. It's much more of my background in, in many respects. Um, I don't, I always did good in school, but that was just more my, my personality tended towards the arts, but it was this interest in mycology and wanting to understand it better because it was just so fascinating that, okay, I realized, okay, yes, I need to basically learn chemistry to appreciate 
what fungi can do chemically because they're actually great chemists. What they do in the world of chemistry is, again, quite fascinating, quite incredible and unique. And then in, into the world of ecology, in, into the world of ecology, as I mentioned earlier, fungi are some of nature's greatest you know, connectors. They do so much in the natural world and, and really um, it's a huge topic. But when you start to appreciate that, it kind of really changes the way you can see the world around you. Um, one of the subtopic, subtitles of my book is Seeing Fungi. Um, and that term basically came in while writing it, basically thinking about this ecological perspective. It's a whole new way of seeing the natural world as seeing a world created by fungi, which I understand can sound kind of extreme or out there to somebody not familiar with the topic. But when you actually look at the, the evolutionary history of fungi, the ecological importance that we now understand about fungi, there's much you can say um, in this respect. So it's a huge kind of paradigm and game changer from a naturalist perspective. Um, and then, you know, so, so through that, then I'm curious about the trees and the plants and, and then how the bees and the insects are, and the birds are affected by what fungi do. Um, yes, I'm interested in them, these other topics, but it's actually because they, they're connected by fungi. So, and you could say that, you know, about anything, almost, you know, everything connects right in the natural world. Um, but I just love fungi because actually they touch on so many topics and, and often, you know, again, I'm biased, but in the ways they do it, it's usually in this, really crazy, really unique, uh, so unlike anything else type of way that it just is endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, and it seems like they are endlessly fascinating because uh, there is so many expressions of the way that they grow and and teach. It, It sounds like you have a sense that everything is connected and that you have experienced that, that you are able to relate that, that overarching awareness to other people. Would you say that, that that's what you do? You relate this stuff? Do you connect it to ecological consciousness? Is that how you teach it? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, to some degree, I'm, I'm of course, it's, it's hard to see it when you're in the middle of it or not. And we all have that problem of not really being able to put ourselves in other people's shoes hundred percent. So for me, I take these things for granted. And, and of course I'm sort of immersed in the information and the awareness. So it's always quite humbling and, and um, good to take a step back from me and, and realize, you know, I mean, most people don't know this stuff and that's why I love teaching it and always seeing that light bulb kind of go off for people. Um, most of the classes I've taught have been on cultivation is sort of this practical sort of direct inroad into mycology. And my hope is through that inroad, people learn, to appreciate the other aspects to varying degrees. Um, but I'm actually quite excited about the school because there will, there will be a dedicated class just on ecology where we can really go deep and, you know, really hopefully blow minds and, um, you know, show that through just, a, you know, just this topic, again, as I said earlier, just there's whole new ways to see the world and, you know, just through probiotics, you know, something that seems so simple perhaps, but then say you start eating it and your gut health gets better. And it's just like, wow, this is something I've never heard. I can't believe that food can be so healing. You know, what else is out there kind of thing. Um, I, I mean, I'm interested in all kinds of alternative approaches to everything. That's just my, my nature. Um, you know, for me, the theme of, I feel like the, the biggest, the biggest lesson I've learned in life and my college has certainly been a big part of that is just usually the stuff you don't hear enough about, or you never really hear anything about, and especially the stuff you're kind of told not to look into is usually the most interesting stuff uh, out there. For me, you know, probiotics, fermented foods, um, it certainly goes along with that. You never hear about them, but dang, are they delicious and really good for you. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You know, the more that I get um, into fermentation, the, the deeper down the rabbit hole I go and see how it actually opens up all different areas of living a probiotic life. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about uh, fungi and micro-remediation and how you can work with them for that ecological re- remediation. Uh, you want to share a little bit about what that looks like to do ecological remediation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so they, um, you know, fungi, you sort of have to take a bit, bit of a step back, I think, to give it the full appreciation so it won't be too long-winded. But as I mentioned earlier, um, when you understand the role fungi played in, in Earth's history, the evolution of, of the Earth, uh, both geologically and, and biologically, fungi have been pretty central. Uh, it seems quite, quite plausible that they were essentially the first 
larger celled structured organisms of earth um, after bacteria. So they've been around longer than plants and animals. And arguably we descended from fungi, which is a big concept unto itself. And a lot of their work along the way has basically been sculpting the environment, if you will, um, spatially engineering it to, you know, you could say they're doing it to support themselves and they're greedy, if you will. Um, but along the way, however you slice it, it's been able to support animal and, and uh, plant health. And one of the major ways they really do that at the core is through their chemical chemistry mastery. And really a major part of that is decomposition or recomposition, as I like to say, because, you know, everything in essence sort of takes the waste of something else, you know, fungi eat dead animals and plants and so do humans. Um, But they churn out byproducts that are much more, uh, arguably much more important and especially more immediately viable by other organisms in say that, especially like the soil. So what I'm getting at is that fungi are really good at breaking things down from, um, you know, pretty much anything nature's produced, including rocks to, to wood, which is nature's kind of most complex, uh, molecule is some of the compounds in wood. And they disassemble all that into simple, uh, amino acids and peptides and simple sugars that they use for food, but also get left behind in other bacteria and amoeba and things eat and the whole soil web really moves forward. So they're conditioning, they really condition the the soil, they structure the soil for airflow and water flow. So it's not even just uh, compositional, it's, it's, it's structural that they influence. Um, and in all these facets, there's sort of enabling life at the soil level. And then there's many other um, ways they do it inside of animals, inside of inside of plants um, as symbiotic internal organisms. Um, again, huge, huge topic. So, but just taking that chemical sort of mastery, that decomposition thing that they're so good at, so much so much better at than, than bacteria, plants, or animals, really, in, in many respects. And we just apply that awareness, that understanding that they are uniquely powerful in this realm and apply that to the, the chemicals and the pollutants that humans have uh, invented and, as far as we know, have never existed on Earth before. Many of the industrial compounds uh, chemists have created in the last 100 years um, are unique to nature, or at least unique to the Earth. And yet we have found over the last few decades by many scientists in the lab that various fungi can eat many of these types of chemicals from all kinds of uh, petroleum hydrocarbons to dioxins and PCBs and um, endocrine disruptors, uh, even various types of plastics. Fungi with their chemical mastery is just a simple way to think about it. They can break that stuff down. Um, In some cases, almost 100% essentially disassemble it into non-toxic or hopefully less toxic byproducts. In some cases, depending on a variety of temperature and pH variables and things, maybe they only do it 50% or 30%. But in essence, they can break things down. And, and you know, the, the, the punchline of all that is that in the long run, you know, all the, the waste and the pollutants, pollution we've created, though devastating in many respects uh, now and, you know, certainly leading to many acute problems, the hope is that in the long run, long, long run, you know, fungi will break kind of down, will break down everything humans have ever created. Um, and that's just what they, they do from the plastics to the metals, to the, to the wood, uh, products. So we can apply that knowledge, um, not just in our sort of forward thinking and hope for the future, I guess, but also just in more immediately in oil spills or, you know, this is, this is the, 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 the big hope is that someday we can just kind of grow fungi and so much of our waste, a lot of the, the waste we produce in our own kitchen. Who wouldn't love a little mushroom digester under the sink where they throw you know certain types of trash away and the fungus just breaks down and the byproducts totally safe and go in the compost. Now we're we're not anywhere near that yet, but it's it's a plausible scenario. Um, perhaps not everything we produce. Well, we probably shouldn't produce all a lot of the things we do produce as humans. Uh, so there's that the, the sort of the source is part of the problem, but also, you know, at the end of the day, fungi can't do everything is, is another important thing to point out, but they can do a lot. Uh, the problem is that or sort of the issue of the state of affairs, I guess, is that a lot of the, the examples, the, the inspiring examples so far have mostly just been done in small lab uh, bench scale tests where you just get a small little container and, you know, sort of proof of concept the, the real challenge is going to a landfill, going to a really large sort of spill scenario where nature is at, you're at the whims of nature, things are much more complex, 
And there's only a few times that that's really been trialed. And in most of those scenarios, the results can be kind of mixed. Um, so at this point in, in history, uh, and again, the science, mycology is a young science, and this this subset of mycology, what we typically refer to as microremediation, is very, very young with very few real-world examples, um, but so much room for exploration, so much room for improvement. And really inspiring is that once you understand the ins and outs and the finer details, um, it's really a, a topic that many people you know, could, could play with in their backyard, in their basement, you know, in the garage with some safety precautions, um, and perhaps make a pretty significant discovery. Um, this is, was one of the main emphasis emphases, I guess, of radical mycology years ago was this, everybody can do microremediation was sort of our, our chant. Uh, I realized pretty quickly that that's kind of too many steps ahead of most folks. You know, first we need to educate around what are fungi, um, you know, the basics, but once you get over that, then, then these applications are are fairly approachable, um, but unfortunately, just the the short history, limited funding, and, and and really the access to information has left us with just only a few good examples uh, so far. Right. So it sounds like there's lots of demonstrations of what's possible, but not any large scale projects um, in micro remediation. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can look up at the literature that many types of fungi from many molds, uh, so not just mushrooms, but molds, um, soil dwelling fungi, wood decay fungi, so different ecological niches have been trialed in, in the lab yeah, on small scales and they'll take, you know, X fungus and grow it on chemical Y, chemical Z and, and see what the interaction is and see at the end of the one day, one week, one month study, however long the, the time period is for the given study, uh, they'll retest basically the concentration of the chemical and see how much the fungus is broken down. And so that kind of relatively simple experiment I just vaguely outlined has been repeated many, many times. Um, and it's, it's, it is something you could do in your, your garage or backyard quite, quite easily if you want to pay for the testing. The, the challenge now is taking what we do know, which is that, yes, some fungi are much better than others at breaking down certain chemicals, and this temperature seems to be a better temperature, or this added food ingredient, sort of like a fertilizer, helps speed up the process. But taking all that lab knowledge and really putting it out in the field, and that's where, where the limitate, that's just where the, the, you know, the limits are. We haven't really, most people are, there, there haven't been many anecdotal uh, studies or conclusive studies, I guess I should say, that that show the effectiveness, not that that couldn't be done. It just hasn't really been done um, as a state of affairs. And the reason is, I mean, there's many reasons. One is funding, one is uh, patent limitations to degree, um, but also just the industrial standardized approaches to remediation are usually what went out. Um, you know, there are more t industrial approaches are standard, the standard approach. Uh, often it can be just like scrape up the soil and burn it. And that's what it's done on large scales, usually with the Environmental Protection Agency here in the States. Um, and then even the biological realm, plants and bacteria can do quite a bit to clean up pollutants. That's, they're certainly good for various things as well. And they're much better studied than fungi. So even if a person was to take a biological approach, they might be more inclined to something that's a bit more proven. Um, so we just need to give it more time. But along with that time, there needs to be greater awareness, emphasis, and encouragement for experimenting being prepared to fail, um, you know, which is just a part of, of science. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like um, we sort of understand what is possible now or in the near future in terms of how we relate to fungi. But what about what's possible in 100 years or 200 years? You know, using your knowledge uh, of the extent of what fungi can do, can you give us a bit of a picture of what you think might our relationship be to fungi uh, in a couple hundred years? Wow, that's a great question. Well, you know, you never want to limit and you never, you know, even what I can envision perhaps is, is just a, a slice of what's to come is my hope. But there's so many ways. It's just this, yeah, it, it's the realization that you come is just that every aspect of every human system that we basically design could probably be be 
infused with fungi to some degree and, and very likely enhanced to some degree. So it's hard to say, maybe not like with metallurgy or something. I don't know about that, but um, many aspects. So let's look around, let's look around the house. So many of our, our functional objects, our tables, our furniture, the paneling in our walls, the insulation in our walls. There's many researchers around the world looking into growing mycelium, that's fungal tissue, basically kind of like the roots of the fungus, um, on really any agricultural or urban waste. And that can include cigarette butts, which is the most polluted thing in the world. The most common pollutant in the ocean is cigarette butts. It's something I've written about and have grown mushrooms on to show that you, they can break down the toxins and things in cigarettes. We can take all the cigarette waste and basically grow houses, grow furniture on that, and make use of this otherwise, you know, nasty pollutant. Um, you know, you could do, but you could do that with nearly any waste stream, especially if it has, you know, some carbon and nitrogen and maybe little minerals mixed in and stuff and water. Fungi, uh, some funguses out there that can probably eat that thing, including plastics. Um, now, but in the world of plastics, you know, the hope is perhaps fungi, mycelium can replace some types of plastics we make now. Not all kinds, of course, but. Certain plastic-based approaches, petroleum-based products now could be fungal-based, biologically-based, biodegradable, um, if desired, or when they're dry. These mycelium is incredibly shelf-stable when dry; doesn't largely rot, uh, excuse me, rot-resistant, and um, just an incredible building material. I guess is just the, the larger picture that mycelium and mycelium-based products are the plastic of the future. There's, there's actually a good video online by that title, Fungus, the Plastic of the Future, talking about just this notion that many things in our house could be made out of mycelium. Uh, there's a couple companies basically growing a leather-like material out of mycelium. Right now they're making simple sort of pouches and non-clothing, you know, not stuff you wear in your body that would obviously have a lot of wear and tear. But of course, the hope is in the future we make better sort of mycelium fabrics, and who knows what that's going to look like. Uh, might not be 100% mycelium; it'll be infused with silk and hemp fibers, and who knows what. But there'll be something pretty good, probably in a few years, that we can wear that's durable. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But really, even more broadly, I think it's the it's the infusion of mushrooms in our diets. You know, I would love to see mushroom growing as commonplace as backyard gardening. It's not for everybody. Not everybody gardens, but you can go down to the corner, you know, the store in town for your gardening supplies. Well, most towns in the world don't have a mushroom growing store. I think that's going to change. So we'll have this sort of cultural shift in that small but quite important way. Mushroom growing will then be incorporated and you're growing all kinds of mushrooms as food and medicine on many of your kitchen scraps, um, animal waste. Uh, you know, you can take the manure, you can compost it, you can make it safe and then grow mushrooms on it, right? And then cycle that. You can take uh, other substrates or the food we feed the fungus, grow mushrooms on it. Uh, then the waste of that can be fed to your worms or in really good examples of, say, taking, taking like coffee husks, which are abundant in certain parts of the world. They're very rich in tannins, so they can't be fed to animals directly. But if you grow a fungus on it, it and grow mushrooms on it, it breaks down those tannins and basically makes it digestible then for ruminants. So you get one crop and now you turn to something that's not a fodder into fodder. It's protein rich. Um, there's another good example where they fed uh, medicinal mushrooms to chickens and the medicinal compounds show up in the egg yolks. So we're creating, you know, new higher quality potent medicine, medicinal mushroom, if you will, eggs. Now this is like, who knows what else could be uh, created through this. Um, I feel like that's just perhaps the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I feel like the medicines is another you know, major component to it where natural medicine is so often undervalued, um, sort of generally speaking, plant medicines and things. But medicinal mushrooms, there's so much research there showing how much potentially have in, in thousands of years of history in, in Asia, but even increasingly in the West um, and in the East, a solid peer review study showing the, 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 the importance and value of many mushrooms to boost immunity, um, really combat some pretty severe chronic disorders and diseases. And there's increasingly better ways to cultivate and pr produce these medicinal mushrooms um, to create higher and higher quality products. My hope, the, the problem with medicinal mushrooms right now is that because most people don't know much about them or they don't really know even what they're buying if they buy it in the store, what's in the store, especially here in the West, in the States, 
it's you know kind of like the, the lowest quality products that, that could possibly be made by and large. It's really without getting into the details, just sort of the the cheapest, the simplest, the least potent is what predominates. There's there's better stuff, but that's mostly what's out there. Now, as awareness grows, understanding grows, and demand grows for better and better quality products, we will increasingly get better quality products like you can get from from uh, countries in Asia. And as they're more utilized, as natural approaches become increasingly, you know, as they already are, increasingly more prevalent in mainstream culture, uh, natural medicines and things, once it kind of hits a critical mass and everybody knows somebody who's had a dramatic change in health because they started eating medicinal mushrooms, I mean, what's that going to do to our culture? Not only will they be more accepted is the hope, but also just you'll have that, again, that sort of maybe undescribable paradigm shift like, whoa, this thing we've ignored for so long is actually this hugely important thing. Uh, and and culture changes in indescribable ways. You know, I think even more deeply than that, from you know, I come from also a permaculture background. You know, fungi are just great models of systems uh, design. Like they are, they are systems functioning. They create the systems of the natural. They guide and influence so many of the natural systems. Um, and integrated nested systems are, are interwoven with fungi throughout the natural world. And one thing we haven't really touched on, and one of the things that kind of inspires me along with everything else, is just like that more etheric almost philosophical way of thinking about the world through the lens of mycelium of uh, this sort of connections, but not just in a vague, everything's connected way, but actually practically like how they operate and really, again, going back to that seeing fungi ecological role, uh, when you start to think more broadly about what fungi are doing, you kind of see nature functioning a whole. It's kind of this Zen, you know, overwhelming moment. And for me, that's really inspiring because again, in our education and just sort of the way we learn things, it's usually a little, tidbits of, of factoids here and there. We don't really, we don't get to taught, we don't get taught to see in, in context and see in systems. Fungi sort of influences to do that. And I think that that's just a small piece again of sort of the way of the world, people tend to not really think broadly about how things came to be or what have you and, or where things might conclude. It's sort of everything happens moment to moment because we're all so busy, that type of thing. But through an understanding of mycelium and fungi, you sort of have this bigger awareness of, ripple effects and the butterfly effect, that kind of thing. And who knows? I mean, that's a, a small consequence, but maybe that would be something that fungi offer us is just, an, again, a new way of seeing the world and thinking about our actions and their implications. Um, but on the practical level, really what it comes down to is taking pretty much any quote unquote waste that we produce right now, which we only call it that because we don't know what else to do with it. And we grow some sort of fungus on it and turn it into hopefully food, medicine or soil. And at the end of the day, it's safe and healthy and life regenerates, continues and, and, and is reorganized, reshuffled and ever sort of stepping forward, which is what fungi have always done throughout all of history. And, and again, will continue to do even long after humans, you know, are gone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's fascinating to, to hear about all the ways that uh, fungi is involved in everything around us. And, um, and it's interesting to, to, to think about how we're so connected to fungi. So, Peter, as we wrap up the conversation, what is one thing that you would want to leave with us today? What, what is one thing uh, that you would really want us to take away to understand about fungi? Uh, you know, I guess my biggest message is always that that fungi already influence your life in a million ways and whatever you're interested in, whatever your, whatever you do in your life, fungi are, are impacting that on the receiving end or, or on the giving end, um, if you will, on, on either end of it. And you might, it might behoove you to understand that it might support and improve or enhance whatever you do in your life to just understand how fungi influence that. And then beyond that, if you wish to integrate fungi into your life even more, no matter what you do, um, it's now is the time. We live at an incredibly unique era in human history where we combine sort of for the first time ever both a uh, very, very broad and, and significant understanding of the importance of fungi in the environment and at the same time incredibly and increasingly accessible means to cultivate them and for for all the things we've just discussed so 
now is probably one of the best times in all of human history to get involved in mycology. There's so much room for exploration and pretty much anybody can do it. Yeah, for sure. I'm getting totally stoked about it. So where can people find you, what you're up to, the projects that you're doing, uh, find out all about Radical my- Mycology and Mycologo School? Yeah, so they folks can check out well, radicalmycology.com is uh, going to be a good go-to. It's, it's okay right now, but as I say, we're, I'm really excited about the whole new website coming sooner than later. Um, the book is at the publishing website. Um, we can probably link it in the notes, but it's a kind of weird spelling. It's C-H-T-H-A-E-U-S. So it's Theus Press. It's a word, uh, or Theus.com, uh, so C-H-T-H-A-E-U-S.com. Um, and then you can also check out the school mention, which is mycologos, www.mycologos.world. Um, the school was kickstarted or, or crowdfunded through Kickstarter in December. And basically this whole year is recording and planning out and prepping for many online and in-person courses. So, uh, right now you can just kind of see what's to come and join the mailing list. Um, we do have a small shop with some, some stuff you can check out there in the interim, um, and then also this coming October, we're prepping to do another radical mycology convergence. This will be our fifth one and folks can join, uh, the email, any of the email lists on pretty much any of those websites. Uh, you'll, you'll be hearing about that once it's announced or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And the handle there is rad mycology, R A D M Y C O L O G Y. Or you can follow the school on either uh, Facebook or Instagram, and it's just at Logos. Awesome. And we will definitely link all of those in the show notes. So want to thank you very much, Peter McCoy, for joining us on The Probiotic Life today. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ben. It's been great. Awesome questions. It's been a pleasure. And thanks again all for joining us on this episode of The Probiotic Life. I really love what Radical Mycology is all about. And I'd love to see this podcast go in a similar direction. But it's not just about what I want to do because I really value your input. Yes, you, the one listening right now. So reach out, connect with us, and let us know which direct, what direction you would like to see the podcast go. And all support is greatly appreciated. We love seeing those ratings and reviews. Uh, So give us one, please, and give us an honest review. And thanks to the band Confiture for those funky little beats. If you like that tune today, then check out the band, confitureband.com. And I hope that you, yes you, are inspired to live a probiotic life. So may the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.